0: Jesus says, watch out, the storm is coming. There is this day of separation coming where God will welcome into his kingdom all those who have responded in true faith to the gospel of his Son. But those who don't belong to him, or they'll face destruction. That is the sobering warning.
1: Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, and Jonathan, with a warning like that and knowing that the day is coming when we will either be invited into heaven or we will be turned away, it makes it so crucial, I mean, it was so important for us to really decide where we are going to stand, are we going to come to Jesus or not?
0: Well, the warnings that Jesus gives in his teaching are actually very, very stark about the future, very, very stark about the day of judgment to come. And it's it's hard to read the Gospels and ignore that message. But we should be thankful that Jesus is clear about it, because we do need to be ready. And he gives us an invitation. The heart of the message of the Gospels and of the, the Gospel of Jesus is this invitation to come to him for forgiveness, uh, that he might make us right with God the Father, and that we might be prepared for that day of judgment to be not excluded from the blessings of his presence, but welcomed into his eternal kingdom. And, and that's an invitation for any who would come to him. But it's so important that we hear the warning and we, we reckon with the future that Jesus sets out before us.
1: Jonathan, what would you say to the person who says, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. There, there's no way that God would want me. Well, the
0: invitation and the welcome is for sinners, it is for the guilty, it's not for those who have a tidy moral record. Jesus didn't need to come and die on the cross for people who were already just doing fine uh, in the sight of God. No, he came for people who could not save themselves, and whatever we've done, whatever you've done... Uh, The fact of the matter is that the death of Jesus, the blood of Jesus that was shed at Calvary, is sufficient to pay the price of that. That's the wonder of the gospel, but it means that the invitation is open to anyone who will turn from sin and believe in Jesus.
1: Well, I hope you will join us today in the book of Matthew. We're in chapter 13 as we continue our message, Two Ways to Live. Here is Jonathan. Jonathan
0: having moved here just a year ago now we're now coming to the end of our first summer season in town and one of our projects at home is to try and get a handle on our our garden and to try and figure out what's there we've discovered lots of nice perennials planted there that have been popping up through the year and we've just been trying to figure out what's what but it, it takes time you've got to watch and wait and see to know for sure what's a weed and what's a beautiful flower We've had to be patient and do a fair bit of watching. We were, we were told that quite a number of our trees when we arrived were weed trees and would probably need to come down in due course. But but others, they provided good cover, and they looked attractive. And we thought they're probably worth keeping. Just the other day, I was, I was mowing the lawn, and I came across a little pile of cherries on the ground. And I looked up, and I realized I was standing under a cherry tree. I hadn't realized that before but the fruit was a dead giveaway for someone who doesn't know trees. I was able to discern. I was able to identify it. Once the fruit is out, you've got that telltale sign. It's no mistake that in our passage, verse 15 follows verses 13 and 14. The connection here is actually very important and it's very intentional. Jesus has just told us to follow the narrow path to life and to avoid that wide road to destruction. Now he tells us to be very careful to avoid false prophets, false teachers. Why does Jesus go there right away? What's the connection? How does that fit together? Well, the connection is simple. Who we are listening to, the teachers we sit under, well, that's going to have a massive impact on whether we travel down that road to life or whether we head down the road to destruction. In Jesus's own time, the choice would have been whether the crowds would listen to him and his teaching, whether they would respond to this sermon that he is delivering right now, or whether they would reject him and follow instead the religious leaders of the day, many of whom Jesus branded dangerous hypocrites. Now, in our own day, in some way, the choice is slightly more complicated and it takes even more discernment perhaps. We may well recognize that the word of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus in scripture is right and is true. And we may well therefore be inclined to trust teachers and preachers who speak in the name of Jesus and claim to teach his words. But yet these teachers may be compromised in some way. They may be misleading. They could even be false. And so the issue matters. And the question is very acute. How do I identify a false teacher? How do I identify someone that Jesus calls a ravenous wolf? I wonder how you would answer that question. It's not an easy question. How might you try and discern whether someone is a trustworthy teacher or not? I guess most of us would look instinctively at their doctrine. That makes sense that's obvious, and we should do that, is what a teacher says biblical. Are they clear on the authority of Scripture, the centrality of the death of Jesus, the divinity of Christ, and so on? Those are good, and those are basic questions to ask, and we must ask them. But it is interesting, isn't it, to notice what Jesus tells us to look at. He tells us to look at the fruit of their doctrine in their life. And I take it that he means we should look at their character. We ultimately should be looking at the character that they produce in their hearers as well. Now, that makes perfect sense as we stand back and we think about that. If someone has a firm grasp on the truth, then surely the truth should have a firm grasp on them. It should be transforming them bit by bit. It should be shaping their lives. It's obvious on one level, but it's not always how we think when looking for teachers to listen to we often look first for giftedness i think that's what i instinctively do so often we listen to those and we seek out those who are perhaps compelling to listen to who can maybe draw a crowd who are engaging or innovative or fresh or whatever and while a teacher of course needs to have a gift of teaching we run into a lot of trouble when we seek out teachers simply based on their teaching ability. That's only one part of the picture. Actually, there'll be a lot of people out there who have a sharp mind and a silver tongue, but who are not godly in life, and Jesus would tell us to avoid them. That's why, actually, when the Apostle Paul uh, sets out the qualifications for a teacher in the church, an elder in the church, in 1 Timothy and in Titus as well, his list of qualifications there is almost all about character and hardly at all about gifting. He mentions teaching, but that's it. Otherwise, it's all about character. It's all about godliness. Some may have the gifting, but not the character. And Jesus says, be careful. Jesus says, look out, you'll know the false teacher first and most clearly by the fruit or the lack of fruit in their lives. And also by the way they influence others over time. Look at the fruit and over time you will discern if a teacher is trustworthy. It's important for all of us within the church family as we listen to different elders and pastors and teachers in different contexts, in different groups throughout the week. We want to be asking all the time, not only is this teaching sound, but is there evidence in this teacher's life that the truth is bearing fruit over time? Now that's a fair and healthy question for us all to be asking here in the local church. But I think there's another area where this truth applies and that we need to think about, and that's our discernment when it comes to listening to teachers from further afield. In our very interconnected global age, the reality is that our doctrinal and our theological influences will often come to us from teachers who are further afield. In an era of easy worldwide communications, we can turn on the TV, or turn on the radio, or go online and find access to thousands and thousands of different teachers from all over the world. And on one level, that is fabulous. That is a wonderful thing. We have access so easily to an unimaginable wealth of teaching resources, and we're very privileged in that way. But in our interconnected world, the dangers of sitting under false teaching, those dangers are surely multiplied. There's a danger because if one of our primary influences is a TV or a radio preacher from thousands of miles away, someone we've never met, never seen in the flesh, probably never will meet, if that's the case, we're going to struggle to do what Jesus tells us to do here in this passage, that is to look out for fruit in their lives. The beauty of the local church is that our teachers are known to us. Although it's a big church, we still have the opportunity to get to know one another over time. So if one of our elders or our pastors is teaching, we do have an opportunity to see something of their lives as well as a local church. As a ministry team, we often joke that there's really nowhere to hide when it comes to serving with so many people in the church family. The pastors can hardly go anywhere without being spotted in town. But the point is that in a local church we do know our teachers we see them in the flesh we we bump into one another in the supermarket or wherever we serve alongside one another we're perhaps neighbors and there's some safety in that i think that's part of god's good design because we do know something of one another's lives now that's really just a word of caution and an encouragement to be discerning when it comes to teachers from afar. If you've been a Christian for some time and you've kept your eye on the wider evangelical world for any period of time, you'll know full well that with some regularity, big name TV preachers are shown to be compromised in some way. Their teaching sounded good, but their life didn't match. Perhaps folk didn't know. And eventually the whole thing just unraveled and it's a big mess. But from a distance, it's hard to discern hard to know.
1: You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called Two Ways to Live. It's the last message in our series, God's Blueprint for a New Society. And if you've missed any of the broadcasts in the series, you can always come to our website and you can listen online. Our website address is encounterthetruth.org. That's encounterthetruth.org. Well, when you're at the website, hope you'll consider giving a gift of support because we're able to bring you Jonathan's teaching because of your generosity. We stay on this station with your financial help. But as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a classic book written by Elizabeth Elliott. It's called Through Gates of Splendor, simply our way of saying thanks. You can find out more or give online when you come to EncounterTheTruth.org. All right, let's get back to the message. Once again, here is Jonathan
0: two kinds of path, two kinds of teacher, and finally, two kinds of disciple. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's so easy to hear an important message, a message of life and death, to understand that it's important, to register that it's important, and then functionally to completely ignore it. We've all heard that message that texting on our phone while driving is a big no-no, a major distraction, a potentially lethal error. But we also know how often folk do it, how common it is. It's so common, isn't it, to be sitting at a red light, to look over at the other car and to see the driver there just buried in their phone. A car sped by me in the fast lane on the highway the other day, and I I glanced over and caught sight of the driver, one hand on the wheel, one hand on the phone, eyes fixed down. They must have been doing like 140 or something. An OPP officer appeared on the news this week to plead with the public to take the warning seriously. 47 people killed this year so far in Ontario through distracted driving. They're pulling people over for texting all the time. We know the message. We understand the message but we so easily ignore it. A large crowd have been sitting, listening to Jesus's sermon. I expect they've been very attentive. Jesus was a captivating preacher. That's what we're told in verse 28. The crowds were amazed. I expect you could have heard a pin drop as he spoke. But Jesus knows full well that for many there in the crowd, his message would be in one ear and out the other. And so Jesus wants to make it crystal clear that what matters to him, what's ultimately significant is not just hearing his word, but doing what he says. Jesus is concerned about that because ultimately listening to his word and responding to his word, well, ultimately it is a matter of life and death, verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers." There will be people who not only listened to Jesus, but claimed actually to minister in his name, who claimed a powerful Christian spirituality, and yet actually had not responded to what Jesus had been saying in his sermon. He's made it crystal clear that his kingdom people, his saved people, his true people, are going to live in a distinctive kingdom way. And the proof that we belong to Jesus, the proof that we've been made righteous through His saving work, the proof is going to be this countercultural way of life. And whatever pretensions to spirituality we may have, when it comes to that final day and we stand before the Lord Jesus, if there's no evidence that we've been living as kingdom people doing the will of the Father, if there's no evidence of that, Jesus' warning to us is very stark he will say to such a person, I never knew you away from me. That's a stark warning, and it is one we need to hear. We we rightly rejoice when someone prays a prayer of repentance and, and makes a profession of faith. It's a wonderful thing. But as we rejoice, we need to remember that the reality of Christian conversion is demonstrated by a changed life we remain sinful until the day we die. All of us do. We are all works in progress. We're not the finished article. And so our record of life will always be a mixed record. This side of heaven, all that is true. But praying a prayer someday and then ignoring the Word of Jesus for the rest of our lives, showing no evidence of a changed life, that will not save us. And Jesus wants to be clear about that. As he comes to close his sermon, Jesus continues really to drive home the same point, but now he reinforces it with a new and a powerful image, verse 24, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation. On the rock. We don't have to work very hard this week to visualize Jesus's image here. We've seen plenty of pictures of rain and wind and flood and destruction. It's been heartbreaking to see the sheer devastation of Harvey for the people of Texas and Louisiana. The rain has come down in torrential quantities, 27 trillion gallons, I understand. The streams and the rivers and the tides, they've all risen. The winds have blown. And as all that has happened, we've seen well-built buildings somehow survive. And we've seen lots and lots of flimsy buildings destroyed. And we all know that when the weather gets bad, a key to survival is the foundation of a building. Rock is great. Sand can be a problem. And Jesus' point in his illustration is as simple as it is powerful. If you build your life upon a rock, you are in a very safe place. You'll survive the storm, even the coming storm, of the judgment of God. What does it look like to build on the rock? Well, it looks, verse 24, like hearing the word of Jesus and then wisely putting that word into practice. What does it look like, verse 26, to build on sand? Well, here actually is a great surprise. What might we expect Jesus to say here? Surely the sand is the foundation of another person's teaching, another religion's teaching. Sand is the teaching of of atheism or agnosticism or another world religion. That would make sense to us, but that's not actually where Jesus is going here at this point in his sermon, he knows he's not speaking to atheists or agnostics. He's not speaking to pagans. He's not dealing with them right now. The people he is concerned about right now are the people who might call him themselves his followers, his disciples, but who don't actually put his word into practice in their lives. The people who build upon sand are those who hear the right words, the words of Jesus, not some other words, but who then fail to do them. The people who build their lives upon sand are the people today, if you like, who attend sound Bible-teaching churches, who make a point of hearing the word of Jesus regularly, who listen to good preaching, who read sound Christian books, but who then having heard the word of jesus regularly fail to put it into practice in their lives The story of the wise and the foolish builders is one of the most famous stories in all the Bible. Every children's illustrated Bible has that story. Everyone learns it at Sunday school if they go to Sunday school. And in our familiarity with the story, we tend to assume that if we are church people and not atheists, agnostics, outsiders, if we are church people, we are the ones building on rock and not sand. But the shock here is that the sand people are actually church people. They're the ones who make a point of seeking out and listening to the word of Jesus. They're the ones who hear it, but who then fail to do it. The warning of Jesus in this image, shockingly, surprisingly, is not for people out there beyond our walls. It is actually for us in here. As we listen to the Word of Jesus, as we listen to it even this morning, are we committed to being those who are doers of His Word and not hearers only? That's the question He puts to us, and it is a searching question. Jesus says, watch out, the storm is coming. There is this day of separation coming where God will welcome into His kingdom all those who have responded in true faith to the gospel of His Son. But those who don't belong to Him on that coming day of separation, that day of storm, well, they'll face destruction. That is the sobering warning. We're not saved by our good living. We're not saved by our obedience to Jesus. That's not the point. If that was Jesus's point here in Matthew chapter 7, He wouldn't be heading for His own death on the cross later in Matthew's gospel. No, we're saved through the work of Jesus alone, through His sin-bearing death. We're saved by faith in Him. But that faith will transform us, says Jesus, if it is true faith. That faith will lead to obedience. It must lead to obedience. And if it hasn't led to obedience, if it hasn't led to change, if it doesn't lead to life transformation, it's not true faith. If we hear but fail to do, we're building on sand, says Jesus, and it's a dangerous foundation. In His great Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has given us plenty to respond to, plenty to live out. And it's far too easy, I think, for us to allow Jesus' teaching in this great Sermon on the Mount just to kind of wash over us. We hear it. We feel its challenge. We reflect on it as we walk out the door on a Sunday morning. But somehow we manage to kind of shrug it off by the time Monday morning rolls around and we head off to the office. And so let me suggest for each one of us that we take some time today or tomorrow, and why not just read through the Sermon on the Mount again, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and after each little section, just prayerfully ask ourselves, ask yourself before the Lord with all honesty, am I merely a hearer or am I a doer of this Word of Jesus? And if I reach the end of the sermon and I conclude I am merely a hearer and not a doer, then I need to ask the Lord to be gracious to me. I need to ask the Lord to change my heart, transform my heart, that I might actually become a true doer of His Word, a true follower of His. Our hour of decision, a choice between two types of path to follow, two types of teacher to listen to, two types of disciple
1: to be. Jonathan Griffiths, with a message called Two Ways to Live. It's the last message in our series, God's Blueprint for a New Society. Taking a look at the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to make sure you don't miss a future broadcast, come to the website. You can sign up to podcast the program. Our website address is EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, Encounter the Truth is a listener-supported program. We do depend on your generosity to keep the program on this station. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, We want to send you a book from Elizabeth Elliot. It's called Through Gates of Splendor. Now, this tells the story of how Elizabeth's husband Jim and four other missionary young men traveled into the jungles of Ecuador to share the gospel and ended up losing their lives at the end of a spear. We'd love to send you a copy of this book as you give a gift of any amount. Find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 1-833-99-TRUTH. That's 833-998-7884 or encounterthetruth.org. Thanks for listening. For Jonathan and for our producer, Mark Bretta, I'm Steve Hiller, and I hope you'll join us next time.